Hello and welcome, dear listeners, to another brand new episode of the EMG Gold podcast. Sem Boyasi here, Head of Content Marketing at EMG Health, and I have the pleasure of once again hosting an interview with a fascinating guest, and I hope that you find this inspiring and learn a thing or two. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I have certainly been listening to podcasts a lot more over the last year, and especially during lockdown in the UK. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing whilst listening to this, I hope you enjoy it. So let me give you a bit of background about the person I have here for you today before we dive into the interview, which is with the one and only Kay Wesley. So Kay, for those of you who don't know, is the chief executive of Kanga Health, a digital agency that helps pharmaceutical and healthcare companies create winning digital marketing strategies and medical communications. Over the course of her career, she has transformed startups into multinational players, taking one dot-com business to be the number one brand in the UK and launched it in 10 new countries. Kay was also the global digital director for AstraZeneca for five years, during which time that organization became a digital leader in the industry. And she has recently been elected as the UK's first Women's Equality Party councillor in the UK, where she is fulfilling her passion and campaigning for gender equality. Kay, so brilliant to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Very, very excited to dive straight in. And there are so many things from that introduction, which I don't think quite did justice on the amount you've achieved, that I want to pick out and dive into more. But to start with, when did you first truly understand the potential of digital? And how did that then influence the direction of your career? Well, I am one of the few people left in the industry, I think, who's actually older than the internet. And I um, worked on a project uh, way back in 92, 93, when I was a, a brand director for a financial software company at that time. And we had a new uh, module, uh, which was web-based financial reporting, uh, which was uh, nicknamed uh, Spider-Man, actually. That was the code name for the project. And eventually, when it launched into the market, um, no one could call it anything else. So we ended up calling the product Spider-Man uh, Financial Services <laughs> and Financial Delivery and uh, licensed the brand and everything from Marvel Comics, which was a lot of fun. Uh, but the, the interesting thing for me was the way that this could suddenly bring information and content and insight on a global level to to the desks of finance directors worldwide and i thought gosh this is going to this is really going to change the world it was very disruptive in that sphere and then when i got the chance to join the dot com uh, universe in the 1990s i very quickly jumped ship uh, and worked as a vp of marketing for a, a dot com company that we launched and then rolled out around the world as you mentioned and floated on on the stock market so yeah i realized very early on the opportunity for digital to really um, disintermediate, I think was the trendy word that we use then, um, the ability for uh, buyers and sellers to connect directly, you know, for recruiters and employ for, for employees and employers to connect directly uh, and for all sorts of other 
industries and uh, platforms to be accelerated through digital. So that's why I jumped into that world and really uh, had a very interesting ride, as many of us did in the 1990s. Uh, So then I very quickly realized that it could have an impact on the corporate world as well. So when I got the chance, having started my career many years before in as a biochemist in the pharma industry, uh, when I saw an opening that pharma needed to start transforming for digital uh, and I got this opportunity, I, I moved into AstraZeneca, as you mentioned, and worked for their mm. digital team. Super fascinating. And, and you then kind of at, at some point later on as, as in the position you're in now, you founded Kanga Health uh, back in 2013, I believe it was, um, after, as we mentioned, leading digital transformation in pharma and in other industries. What learnings did you apply to the ethos and objectives of Kanga? Well, um, I think... Uh, for me, it's really, really clear what makes a successful team and, and a successful business and a successful agency. And the first thing for me is people. Uh, we're a people business and uh, people have to be the centre of what we do. Uh, happy people, in my experience, do great work. Uh, they deliver quality outputs for clients. The clients are happy. And so you end up with a profitable business. So, um, and the agency world, a bit like the dot-com world, can be a very high-octane environment. And especially the digital agency world can be very challenging. People tend to work around the clock. Uh, you know, they, they work long hours. The internet is never off. And it, there's this kind of culture that we're never off. And media agencies generally tend to be have that culture as well. Um, in my experience, that doesn't always work well in getting the best out of people. So um, putting people right at the centre, making sure that people are really enjoying what they do, making sure that everybody's really focused on what we're trying to achieve here. We're about, we're not about technology and, um, you know, we're not about just being uber creative. We do all of those things, but it's really for me about getting better outcomes for patients and getting better solutions for healthcare. So I think the fo- that focus on people, quality of work and the ethos is really important to me in my business. And, and you can kind of tell that I couldn't help myself, but when I kind of researched uh, you guys a bit more ahead of doing this podcast, I couldn't help but watch your 2020 Christmas video. And that I think really kind of highlights indeed what uh, an awesome bunch you guys seem to be and having fun and all of that. So I certainly believe what you say in terms of putting people at the center of everything that you do, which then, of course, inevitably delivers better outcomes for clients and the patients at the end of the day. Um, so I love that. Thank you. Thank you. For, I'm glad you enjoyed our video. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as you know, obviously, it's not a secret that uh, pharmaceutical marketers were, along with a lot of other industries and people within the pharmaceutical uh, industry, compelled to kind of rapidly adopt digital communication tools last year. But do you expect transformation to continue going into 2021, even once physical interactions are once again allowed? Well, I think what we've seen is an acceleration of something that was already happening. Now, I've been saying, you know, for 20 years to this industry, you know, we need to transform for digital, we need to change our people, our processes, our practices, um, and everything we do. And digital isn't just a sort of tool 
mm-hmm. kit it's also a mindset and it's a, a way of doing business and operating in the digital world uh, needs you really to take a root and branch look at everything that you do not only in marketing but also in medical in supply chain in every aspect of your business and as and many of our clients are now appointing chief digital officers and those kind of roles which uh, you know for, for me is, is for us is long overdue um, and what we've seen is for many years really you know evolution and not revolution I guess it's fair to say and, and the industry's been saying you know we've been saying oh well yes we are doing more of this but there's no burning platform yet you know and you know our business model is you know has been successful for 100 years or whatever well I can tell you what in 2020 was definitely a burning platform for our mm-hmm. industry because our main uh, business model our main go-to-market which was through the field force for, through sales reps through congresses and face-to-face interactions was completely swept away so the things that we had a very very busy 2020 I know a lot of businesses have struggled but I'm sure all uh, our peers in the digital world have not struggled have been extremely busy mm-hmm. uh, because what I've been saying to this industry for 20 years everyone suddenly wanted to do in two weeks last year <laughs> so we uh, got extremely busy and um, you know and I think in a way it was really good because uh, it accelerated um, the thinking uh, and there's nothing like a crisis you know penicillin was invented in wartime and that's that wasn't an accident that was because there was an urgent requirement and I think th- the same applies here that all of a sudden we had to say well actually do you know what we maybe we can make uh, remote interactions just as impactful as face-to-face maybe we can uh, leverage all of that uh, lovely Google traffic and make sure mm-hmm. that we can engage people properly in web-based channels uh, maybe we should be accelerating uh, you know what we're doing in non-personal selling uh, and all the other opportunities to interact and engage and all the potential touch points and until last year you know we used to monitor what our clients were doing and although uh, and then uh, 95% of physicians information seeking time was in digital channels the industry was still spending 80% of its budget in traditional face-to-face channels. So there's this huge mismatch between what the industry was spending its money on and what the customers actually wanted. And last year has forced our hands and said, well, actually, do you know what? All of that 80% that we were spending on face-to-face, we can't do any of that now. So we've really got to say, what are our customers doing in all these digital channels? Where are they going and how can we be there? Uh, so all of a sudden, you know, that, that debate and that discussion we've been having over many years became accelerated. And I think it's bred some really good practice. Um, it's bred some fairly dodgy practice as well as people have tried to, you don't um, you do not do the same thing in digital channels that you do in face-to-face, you know, mm. pushing messages out through more channels. So, you know, some of our clients said, oh, you know, I'm a bit webinared out. You know, every yeah. day I've got, you know, 100 emails inviting me to another webinar. It's not just about really saying, okay, so we can't push it all that way. Let's push it all that way now. You have to start thinking differently. You have to start putting your customer at the center and saying, where are they living their lives? And how do we get permission to join them? And what value can we add for them? So it's kind of forced our hand. 
And um, at Kanga, we do a lot of workshops. And one of the things we do with our, uh, is very much co-creation. So we insist on bringing in the doctors, bringing in the patients, working with them to help co-create the solution in a kind of design thinking approach. So, uh, and our clients from, love it. You know, they really get close to their uh, customers and their patients. And we end up with better solutions that resonate uh, and continue uh, to engage people. So that's been a fantastic way of working. Of course, in 2020, all those face-to-face workshops uh, couldn't be done. And I think even for us, even we used to say, okay, we can do all this remotely, but the patient workshop, we really have to do face-to-face because, mm-hmm. you know, often patients, patient workshops are a little bit like therapy for every, the patient and for us. Mm-hmm. You know, they go right through their journey. They can be quite emoti- emotional um, uh, journeys and it's it's a cha- it's challenging and uh, very insightful. And we really thought it would be tough to do those things remotely. And even we've learned new skills and new tools and new web meeting um, uh, toolkits that can help us run we've run workshop we run a workshop with patients with an ultra rare disease from Australia and Brazil and Europe all at the same time you know and that was that was fascinating uh, and we we probably couldn't have got those people physically in the, the room because of their own health so it's taught us that actually we can reach out further and connect with people differently uh, using digital channels and we think we're pretty digital you know our business runs digitally my team we have you know 10 people in Cheshire and then we have another 40 odd all over the place all over the world and so we work digitally day in day out but even we learned some new tricks of the trade uh, to operate digitally so no i don't think um it's going to go back to what it was before i think uh, industry has learned a new way of working and uh, we all have uh, i also think you know the congresses that we we very quickly um digitized a few congresses for clients last year and i think that business model is certainly going to change and i think the congresses who've resisted digital need to now embrace it for years in future asco has have always done a good job because they've always had a digital presence as well as a physical one but i think uh, asco uh, some of the other congresses have really said oh no we won't do much mm-hmm. online because we want bums on seats you know i think they're now realizing do you know what you've really got to do both going forward Super fascinating. And you made a good point there in the end about the congresses, which is something that I'm particularly keen to find out how they're going to be going ahead. Uh, Now, obviously, last year, they were kind of forced to do it digitally and virtually to a certain extent. um, But I'm very, very intrigued to see whether or not uh, they will still continue going ahead fully physically in the future, um, or whether or not some of those learnings that they've adopted from this year will will stay. Uh, Because yes, as you kind of said, I think often uh, congresses in particular run very traditionally. Um, yeah. So that will be super, super interesting. I think there's see. nothing quite like meeting your colleagues is the face to face and being able to have a chat over a coffee or a drink or whatever. I think people do value that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whether you would do, you know, whether you would have congresses face to face less frequently and introduce more, you know, more frequent contacts digitally, that might be interesting. And I think all, then the other thing the congresses did, some of them really tried to make a virtual congress, you know, almost like SimCity where you kind of go in and you have this, you know, 3D experience and you, you know, and, and our customers are saying, I, I don't want all that. I don't want to mess about with all that. I just want to get the the clinical data or I just want exactly. to hear the, the thought leader giving this presentation. So I think Congress is 
almost did what some of our, our colleagues across industry do said oh we need to just do what we've always done but digitally no we mm. actually need to do something different and congresses need to reinvent themselves and transform themselves and yes maybe there will be a physical meeting or maybe they'll even do a hub and spoke maybe they won't say oh we'll have a european and a, a u.s and north yeah. american congress maybe they'll do something you know in multiple locations at once and have a as a bit of a blended approach so you know i think people's eyes are being open to all sorts of different ways of working and you know that's that's been fascinating and in my other life as a counsellor you know it was the law in the UK uh, and certainly in England and Wales that councils had to physically meet to make decisions so there was no provision for video conferencing and the, and the government had to quickly change the law last year otherwise you know a local government would have ground to a halt and now everybody's watching to say are they going to change it back well, why would they? I mean, that, that would be just daft. Why shouldn't you be able to have some people joining uh, remotely? It's just the way the world works now. So, yeah, I don't think we'll ever go back to where we were. And I suppose that's the silver lining of COVID because um, working in a digital way is not only efficient from an environmental point of view, obviously, you know, I usually fly twice a month. I've not been on a plane for a year. So, you know, and that applies to thousands of people. So obviously it's, it's very, very good for the planet working in this way. It's not zero carbon, by the way, digital working, but it's, it's better than flying around the world. Very good for the planet, but it's also good from an equality perspective because not everyone can access remote uh, meetings you know if you are I mean, a single parent with a couple of kids at home it's quite difficult for you to go off to a congress yeah. uh, it's quite difficult for you to attend a council meeting if you you know if you have a disability or other challenges or an, an elderly relative you're responsible for you know there are all sorts of ways in which people are excluded that I think mm -hmm. digital working can help to bring those people in and include them. Yeah, it'd be very, very interesting to see what happens uh, with Congresses going forward. And I guess one of the positives of going into this year as well um, is the hope that comes with the vaccines, uh, which have now been approved. But there is still work to be done when it comes to engaging the general public with vaccination programmes. How do you think pharma can use digital platforms to compliantly educate and encourage the public? Yes, it has been a challenge, hasn't it? The anti-vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers can be very loud and prominent in social media. And we all know the problems that uh, fake news in social media oh, yes. have caused in recent years in the world at large. Um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, colleagues at Pfizer and AstraZeneca and other companies obviously have this challenge and know they have this challenge. You know, one of the biggest challenges they see is that is the the public debate about vaccines um, in terms of getting the uptake where it needs to be to create the immunity across the population that we need. So I think um, happily, I think everyone has been um, so desperate to uh, get out of the situation that actually the pro, what from my own observation, the pro vaccine voices have been very loud and clear so far in the UK at any rate in, mm -hmm. in the public places and in social media. There have been 
those voices, as you would expect, uh, those voices with pseudoscience coming up with all sorts of reasons why vaccines um, are not good for you. And um, they quite quickly shouted down. This is something I've been monitoring as as a person working in healthcare, social media, and as a, and as a local uh, government uh, person, I've been looking, you know, to check that uh, things are staying on track. And so far, I haven't seen I haven't seen a huge challenge. But obviously, those people will be there, and it's really important that industry um, has the right messages going out there that is very much seen to be led by healthcare systems and I think the NHS is doing a brilliant job in the Mm. UK and other health systems around the world indeed the WHO as well so I think it's really important that uh, industry works together and we've often talked about industry working together on patient campaigns and I think this is one campaign where industry could certainly work together and almost run a public information Mm -hmm. campaign in social media maybe pool its resources because it's not one company versus another company. We're all in this together. So maybe it could pool its resources and um, just produce a public information campaign that will help people see, you know, if we don't have the vaccine, life will be like this. Mm-hmm. Once everyone's had the vaccine, life will be like that. And actually selling the positive uh, aspects of having the vaccine and everybody having it. I think the current cohort that we're going through now with the, you know, the more uh, elderly people and clinically extremely vulnerable people, you know, the first sort of uh, cohorts that are getting the vaccine, mm-hmm. um, if you like, are, are less of a problem. I think they're demographically more likely to do uh, perhaps what the doctor says, as we know from our own research. But I think there's there will be cohorts further down in the and perhaps in the lower priority groups uh, who will start to be having this debate and I think industry and the health system needs to be ready um, we'd be very happy to run a campaign uh, for our uh, across industry to help support that uh, Kanga as well because it's something we feel very passionately about as everyone working in healthcare I guess would do. You've just articulated that brilliantly and absolutely it would be so interesting to see as we move on to the rest of the population and the remaining cohorts to see what the responses are um, and the uptake to a certain extent. And as you kind of said there as well, seeing the industry join forces as they've kind of done brilliantly already in so many ways over the last year. Um, it would be such a great thing to do, I guess, to further enhance public awareness and education overall. Um So I guess stepping away from pharma, um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is um, how passionate uh, you are. And uh, I guess you're a passionate advocate overall for gender equality, as we mentioned as well in your introduction. What are your key priorities in your role as the Equality Party Councillor for the coming year? Right. They, uh, quite a lot of things have come out as a result of the pandemic. I mean, people have talked about this pandemic being a great leveller. Actually, I think it's exposed the inequalities in our society. Um, I don't think it's been a leveller at all. Mm -hmm. Um, It's exposed inequalities in socioeconomic status and it's uh, certainly exposed inequalities for women. Uh, Women are primarily the social care workers. More than 90% of them are women who've been at the front line of this 
pandemic, who were struggling without proper protective equipment in the early days, who were very low paid and yet expecting to keep this epidemic at bay uh, in care homes and other settings. The healthcare workers, of course, a huge percentage of nurses are also women, again, bearing the brunt of this. And I think we've seen um, how society is now valuing those people who are doing those jobs um, and thinking about them in a way that perhaps we haven't done before. So I think that's um, a good thing, but let's see if that translates into more actual valuing of those people and those roles. Um, I think what we've we've seen um, that women have borne the brunt of the homeschooling. You know, when uh, people said, oh, your children can't go to school, but you've got to work from home. Um, how, how does that work? Mm-hmm. You know, anyone that's got had ever, you know, had a couple of toddlers at home knows that you, you don't work if you're looking. And that is work looking after two or three small yeah. children. You know, so the idea. So I think women have borne the brunt of that. I think that's been really clear. There's been some news come out um, this week in the UK about women who are freelancers. And obviously in the agency world, there's a huge freelance army um, and who work uh, in the creative spaces and the digital space and the freelance women are complaining because if they've had some uh, maternity leave in the last three years they're getting paid less mm-hmm. uh, from the government than the, the male the men who haven't had leave so there's all sorts of inequalities that, that are being uh, shown uh, the, the domestic abuse has escalated gone through the roof uh, through this pandemic and I think that again has come out from behind closed doors as people have seen what a crisis it is uh, again the majority of uh, people who suffer from serious domestic violence are women at the hands of men. So I think a lot of these things have been exposed and government has been uh, no, almost noticing them for the first time yeah. and, you know, starting to put some resources behind them. So again, maybe that will be a silver lining that some of those things will be focused on. Um, I also think that, that uh, you know, we've seen opportunities for uh, people to work differently, to work from home, to work more flexibly. Some businesses have realised that they can, um, you know, that it's okay for their employees to work from home. And, you know, that's not always good for city centres if offices start to close down. But actually, you know, we I know of a couple of Manchester-based companies who've said, you know what, we're not going to take our office, we're not going to occupy our office again. We're just going to work remotely now because it's worked. Mm. And, you know, that can work extremely well for people who want a more flexible uh, working life and a, a better work-life balance. So I think it the, the it has definitely changed the landscape. And I think the priorities as, as a councillor are to keep the momentum going. You know, there's a number of initiatives we've got going locally here around um, domestic abuse services and uh, supporting uh, childcare services and, and and so on. And I think those things are going to receive hopefully more attention and more funding, therefore, as a result of uh, some of the inadequacies that have been exposed by this pandemic. So those are the sorts of things that um, I'll certainly be working on for the next 12 months. I love you. I, 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 oh, I said, I love you. You love me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I love that, but I also love you for doing that. <laughs> oh, but, but as you were kind of talking, I couldn't help but have a smile on my face because the role that you're playing as the Equality Party Councillor um, is so, so important. Um, and I'm certainly looking forward to seeing the impact that you make in that role. And, um, and yeah, hopefully generally hearing about those kinds of things a lot more because you're right, I think um, inequality has certainly been highlighted a lot more um, over the last year. I would agree with you on that. Uh, but 
but yeah, I love you and I love what you're doing. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm also, I also do try to model it as a business owner. Obviously, mm. it's really important as a business owner to, to role model these things. You know, if we want businesses to treat employees better and to bring in more equality. Um, so as an example, in the last year in um I can't remember when it was, when it got really tough and everyone ended up homeschooling in, in the yeah. first lockdown. I wrote to all my clients and I said, look, uh, folks, you're going to have to give us a break here. We've got mm. people with children. We've got people with elderly parents. We've got people with responsibilities. They might have to miss a meeting or they might have to, you know, um, delay uh, some work. They might have to do work it off, work it in the evening instead of in the afternoon and, and you know, and get it ready for the next morning for you. You're just mm. going to have to accept that we are working more flexibly. We're looking after our people. And do you know what? I got some really good responses from clients who said, well, mm-hmm. we think it's absolutely spot on that you're looking after your people and uh, we are trying to do the same in our business too. So, you know, um, you know, hats off to you. That's the right thing to do rather than expecting, you know, people to mm-hmm. take the brunt of the problem as individuals. I think it's really important that business owners and business leaders role model the, mm-hmm. that good practice and try and get, you know, make sure people know that um, flexible working is a reality. You know, it's not just something on, uh, you know, on a sort of a website. It's actually something that we really do. And it means we get uh, more loyalty and better work from people. Absolutely. Brilliant. Absolutely love that. And um, my final question for you is that alongside your hectic work schedule, you also find time to play a vibrant role in your local community. Can you tell us a bit more about that and and how important has the role of community been in the UK in particular during the COVID-19 efforts? Yeah, it's been so, so important. Um, I would say locally here in the town where I live, where I'm a councillor, we've absolutely been blown away by the volunteers that we've got uh, and the the number of people who want to step up and support their neighbours and help out. We've had people start up uh, food hubs and make sure that nobody's going hungry. We've had um, people who are just willing to um, offer um support to someone who's on their own. We have quite an elderly population in this part of the country in East Cheshire. So we do have a lot of people who might have been quite isolated. So we have an army of people who are willing to, you know, go and get your shopping for you or your prescriptions or just have a friendly phone call. Uh, and in the run up to Christmas, we took a decision as a community. So we ha- I, I'm on a group of community leaders from all sorts of different um, um walks of life so people who run the U3A and people who run the churches and various charities and all sorts of other things Uh, and just before Christmas we applied for some funding and um, in fact Kango actually also dobbed in some funding and we put together like a Christmas present for everybody that was isolated and living alone in Congleton in in our town so that it wasn't for people who were poor and didn't have anything it was purely just to say we care about you so it had you know Christmas cake and you know a bottle of wine and and various other things and and we just gave them a gift and that's in addition to all the sort of food hub and the hardship work that we were doing we just thought you know what we just want to make 
Christmas less lonely for people. So we all got together and um, and did that, which was which was fantastic and had so much lovely feedback from that. Because I think often that's not the sort of thing that national government can really do. Uh, obviously, national government does need to fund the proper hardship, the school meals and all of that. And we've been very much part of the lobby for all of that. But there's nothing quite like just, you know, your neighbour knowing that you care and that you're there for them if need be. And that's a very, very, very local activity, but really, really important. And as I said, we've been, I've been blown away by the humanity and, you know, what it's brought out in people, the, the kindness it's brought out. Um, so, yeah, and now, now they're all volunteering, as, as I am too, uh, for the vaccination centres. So, you know, we've got a little army of vaccination marshals who are helping out with that effort now. So that's brilliant as well. And uh, everybody's so full of hope for the future. So I think we can see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, can't we? Which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. Do you know what, Kay? I don't think I've ever said the word love as many times as <laughs> on this podcast, but we all need a bit more love during these times. We sure right. do. <laughs> but that is all we have time for today. Thank you again for joining us, Kay. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in once again. Do join us again next week here on the EMG Gold podcast for another exciting guest. Thank you and take care. 